0: Section 3 of Through Broadland in a Braden Punt by John Nolittle, a pseudonym of the writer and naturalist Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 5 and 6 Chapter 5 Still Lotus Eating This is a delicious evening when the whole body is one sense, and imbibes delight through every pore. As I walk along the stony shore of the pond in my shirt-sleeves, though it is cool as well as cloudy and windy, and I see nothing special to attract me, all the elements are unusually congenial to me. By Thoreau At seven of the watch on Saturday morning, August the 2nd, when I threw the old tin mystery stove on the bank, the skies did not look happy, but rather lowering. I hardly knew how to shape my weather forecast for the morrow's sailing. There are so few bird signs with this moon here as at Braden, where I can predict possible winds and weather by the comings and goings of gull and duck and plover, by the changes in the colour of the tidal water and other tricks of instinct provoked by years of observation. I sadly miss my quartet of barometers at home, which amuse me by their competitive movements, but they never get to loggerheads. A beautiful aneroid, a valued gift from a friendly peeress, the two Fitzroys, and my grandfather's old banjo, with its brazen face, my one heirloom, made by the ancient Zipfell of Norwich, in the days when the citizens wore cocked hats. If anything, the last-mentioned implement sails nearest the wind of any of them. I might have shipped a fifth from the Moorhen II, but each extra thing means encroachment on the scanty inches of my bedroom in the punt. Of course, most waterside folk don't like to see the cows lie down on the marshes in the morning to chew the cud, turning their fat rump steaks to winnard. Swallows fly low before rain, their prey feel the pressure of the atmosphere and keep low before a downfall when they fly high a hawking take it from me that the insects are swarming in the warmest stratum of air gulls off to sea at nightfall portend calmness when they may sleep upon a clean billowy mattress and they do say Flies and fleas bite hardest against rain. A case of commendable forecast, may be not so from our point of view. Rain afore seven, hold up afore eleven. Thank you, friend Hodge, and soft, delicate clouds too promise fine weather when the greasy-looking clouds have rolled away. THE SIGNS OF COMING STORM, ALL THE LITTLE SEDGE AND DICKY-BIRDS KNOW, WITHOUT BOOK-LEARNING. IT MAKES THEM SILENT AND APPREHENSIVE, TO BE garrulous ENOUGH WHEN OVER. LET ME FEEL THE MARSH-DAMP SETTING ON THE MOORHEN'S ROOF, BY HAND-TOUCH, JUST BEFORE TURNING IN, AND I CHEER ME WITH A PROMISING MORROW. But, of course, my fellow voyageurs know all these things, which accumulate, by observation, almost unconsciously. Some professional yachtsmen have been known to grow remarkably weather-wise when a sheltering riverside pub looms up towards eventide. They may have some faith in the publican's weather glasses. And why need I tire you? it is high time to mooch around the towpath to pick up a few dry twigs with which I can eke out my own sawn firewood. Stinging my hand among the mown nettles, when after a dry willow-bough, I promptly recalled a remark I once read in an old herbal. The nettle, said the learned author, may be known even in the dark by the sense of touch. Tell that to the marines. A few small potatoes from the vegetable bag were prepared for dinner, and were soon rolling about in the boiling water, and something was being arranged to shortly accompany them, but I need not name what. But I do wish the bread was not white. The cuss of shopping in the Broadland villages is the difficulty of getting what you need and the worry of fetching water. The marshmen and broadlanders are shearing off the beauties of the banks and rondings. July's marsh flowers have lived not to see August. The irises are gone, but here and there a spike of purple loosestrife smiles up at you, or rather down on me and the cheery incense of the meadow-sweet provokes your passing observation, whilst the willow-herbs survive, because they are no great catch for the discriminating scythes. I found one small tuft of forget-me-not, winking its blue eyes at the yarwhelp and at me, and culled it, and sent it in my letter to the sentimental old deer at home, I do not like the legend which is said to have given the humble flower its name, which is not so happy as the feeling that prompted me to garner it. Breakfast over, I repeated the grace that my good stepmother taught me in 1863, which ran thusly, Thank God, thank mother and father for my good breakfast. Maybe it was a trifle presumptuous to bracket all three givers, but it set me thinking, and so impressed me, that this sensitive kiddie thought something might happen if he failed to say it. Boys are such funny things to me. A similar exercise on Broadland yachts and houseboats would look so old-fashioned, wouldn't it? but I did much prefer to hear the skipper reciting such than listen to the tinny trumpetings of the worn gramophone across the river. It wouldn't last so long. A small bird is fluttering under the eaves of an adjoining houseboat, catching a spider or two. I do wish birds learnt to respect and spare such industrious and useful co-workers in a righteous cause. Some writer in the Chronicle recently belittled my favourite songster, the Sedge Warbler, Sedge Bird he called it, and by telling us his song is sweet enough, but spoils the admission by adding that it is peevish, timorous, care-ridden. Poor thing, has he ever dozed beside the reed-beds and listened to its midnight warblings? However, Sedgy is quiet to-day, for his young nippers trespass upon his leisure, and, meantime, nature is retuning his organ. The dainty bird constantly flits in and out the riverside weeds to peer at my passing yarwhelp and me. Feeling a bit wearied with my recent feat of seamanship, rowing from St. Olives, I spent the day in idleness, if loafing and scribbling a chapter may be so termed. The cooler feeling of the evening suited me exactly. The air was intoxicating, as strong wine. The tormenting flies did not come out to slide upon my face. Keeping in hiding, I had time to mentally devour each tiny floweret, the antics of each whirligig and water boatman, how exactly they steered in their wild races on the surface, dodging each other and each floating leaf, as clever navigators avoid shoals and other dangers. I had time to watch other things of very common interest, How funny to see a fly drop upon the table, turn himself half round like a door button, dust his jacket, rasp his two hind legs together, scratch his head and then his telescopic little neck which holds it to the thorax like a loose thread suspending a nearly lost shirt button afterwards rubbing his hands as in glee on scenting an aroma from the sugar basin. But such a filthy-looking grey beast of a fly, with eyes as green as a shark's vile optics that are lighted on my neck, I draw a line at, and kill, if it tempts me unduly. Save flies, most other creatures have as much right to live as I. At nine p.m. the new moon was looking straight along the dike from the firmament. Hello, said I, and like a wherryman, I turned my penny, dated 1896, in the August of which I was tumbling about on the Thurn River in my houseboat, Moorhen the first. Two young Norwich fellows returned with boat and stakes from a fishing expedition in the afternoon. They looked expert hands, for they carried a sack in lieu of a creel and had ready excuses for the ill luck of their efforts. They moored just opposite the Yarwhelp, and kindly let me examine their one-pound, what is it, which had been hooked on the very first cast. "'I wonder the fish had seen the bait for weeds. "'Those left behind did not. "'They thought this fish might be a roach, "'but I pointed out the fins which were brown. "'With me they thought it might be a hybrid roach-rud, "'and had they hooked more I should have begged it of them. "'One had decided to eat his catch.' Despite its compressed belly and the parasitic spots beneath the scales, it was thicker the back, but had an ill conditioned look. I told the youth to cut it open like a kipper, retaining the scales, imagine grilling a boater without the skin, and hang it in the air all night, having first salted it on the inside. Not exactly like Josh Billings's mackerel, which he tells us is a game fish, tasting to him as it had been born and fatted on salt. Says he, They want a good deal of freshening before they are eaten, and want a good deal of freshening afterward. If I can have plenty of mackerel for breakfast, I can generally make the other two meals out of cold water. It is just probable that some experimenting Broadland visitor may aspire to Broadland ichthyophagy. To my recipe, he is very welcome. If he can suggest a better one, will he kindly let me know of it? Did I hear a hint at another verse or two of Josh's? Very well, they run thusly. Verse 2. They, the mackerel, are very easy, and are caught with a piece of old red flannel petticoat tied on to a hook. Verse three. They ain't the only kind of fish that are caught by the same kind of bait. Sealer. At ten I snugged down and lay a-thinking and very content. I sometimes wonder in the morning, when was it I went off last night, what was I thinking of? On the broads and rivers, in houseboat or punt, I just curl up in the rug and blankets, like a dog, without three times turning round, and sleep as birds do. Just push my bill under my wing coverts, and not my wing, which is all bogey, and am off "'in a twinkling of a ripple-crest in the moonlight. "'I know I turned in, hoping the wind would be kindly on the morrow. "'It had been a restful day, a gossipy lotus-eating time, "'and the gentle movements of the punt, "'touched by the playful breeze and the ripple of the waters,' Were a soothing lullaby to the unorthodox, unsophisticated little skipper on the cushions on the floor on a level with the water line. Chapter six: an exhilarating sail: living much out of doors in the sun and wind will no doubt produce a certain roughness of character will cause a thicker cuticle to grow over some of the finer qualities of our nature, as on the face and hands, or as severe manual labour robs the hands of some of their delicacy of touch. By Thoreau Thoreau must have seen fingers like mine that started years ago to broaden by hard work, and aggravated these forty-odd years by stiff rowing against the strong ebbs and robust floods of Braden and the Lower Bure. My right third finger will not straighten, the tendons of which have grown knotted, a penalty of pleasure and my love of nature. Forgive me if I put a brief personal touch to this chapter. To be short, I was born in a Yarmouth row, in a house that should have been a rabbit hutch. The youngest of nine, I alone succeeded in surviving the twenty-first year. My old nurse recently told me that when this mingy mite came into town, she said jocosely, "'Say, doctor, shall I put it in a pail of water?' Was that prophetic of my future love of the water? By a sort of perversity inherent in me I did not succumb, whilst the pure sweet air of the marshland and the robust breezes from the sea, coupled with frugal living, may have had something to do with the writing of this chapter. I say these things because I believe the Broadland is an excellent cure for jaded, enervated city-dwellers, who have the wisdom to more than sample its balmy atmosphere. Look at its strapping natives, who plough its fields and waterways, and judge of its effect upon them. I know when after a trip around upon the broads and rivers, I am as brown as a gypsy, and as sprightly as a stoat, going strong. Clothes are a burden, and the crowd's oppressive. At 5.30am this morning, Sunday, I was putting my saucepan over the kitchen stove, hard by the nettles, boiling water for coffee, the sort they bottle, quickly made. I ate no breakfast, but fasted for my sins. "'packing my blankets in their wrappers, "'the bed in three parts in its cover, "'and the awning in the old kit-bag "'that ex-Lieutenant Gilbert, my son, honourably carried in France "'and lately handed over to me, "'his work well done. "'I did not, as I at first intended, "'voyage on so far as Norwich. "'I have seen it from the river.' and felt a little like borrow, who called it a fine old city, and who can wonder that the children of that fine old city are proud of her, and offer up prayers for her prosperity, I myself, who was not born within her walls. How oddly his sentiment and his last line fit me, but it was the birthplace of my sire, I saw all I could of the river from the train, and judged its banks yet more populated with water folk. I saw Whitlingham and Thorpe with their leafy hangars and the charming panorama of moving sails and nestling dainty houseboats, with here and there an ugly one to accentuate the attractions of the others. Why go to the Alps, or hanker after the Mediterranean, or think of Germany? Phew! When a sort of Eden by the year winds around the bends, displaying natural beauties, and revealing the charms of our wholesome English cherubim and water-loving nymphs. I am glad the Norwich people patronise their own river in increasing numbers annually, and it is so easy of access, and such a washer-out of weariness and fag. Flowers in their season smile to the passer-by, refreshing foliage adorns the outlook, and even weeds are floating, to remind us of the curse of Eden's garden. Yet not all weeds are unlovely. At six a.m. I hoisted pennant, AND MY SAIL ON A SURE, OBLIGING WIND. Goodbye, PRETTY brundle year WITH A STRENGTHENING BREEZE, I FOUND IT DIFFICULT TO WATCH MY RED BURGIE, SO AS NOT TO MISS IT POINT TO QUARTER WORTH THE FOLLOWING. THE AIR GREW CHILLIER AS I PROCEEDED, SO I SLUNG A CAMP SHEET AROUND MY SHOULDERS. THE WINDS WERE PUFFY, and slipped out after us from behind tree clumps that hid them. This the Yarwhelp resented, and loved her displeasure when I held her halter too tightly. She stirred up the dark waters to a boil around the rudder, like a steamer light in ballast, the loud gurgling drowning the snores of the yacht folk still wasting Sunday morning in their bunks. "'pretty russet-coloured coldom, beloved of artists. "'An early bird of a werryman, "'whose spouse was in the cabin, bile and tea, "'in the kettle, I reckoned, "'which will not be emptied of its leaves until next Sunday, hailed me pleasantly. "'They treat me as one of themselves. "'I sang back to him a message of goodwill.' For all our chums afloating, I like those handy men of thicker cuticle, robust bearded descendants of the Vikings, and I thanked Providence for the Sea King's blood my own dear mother brought me and the grit that was bequeathed to me by my Highland great grandsire, a wholesome mixture for a little mongrel braidener. Long may petrol and steam tarry so that our Norfolk and Suffolk wherrymen verge not on extinction. They all seem tough and stalwart and free from physical blemish, save for the ills the marsh mists bring them. Whoever saw a wooden-legged werryman quanting or towing on a swampy rond, he wouldn't do it to save the craft from shipwreck. The night wind had deftly broomed all floating weeds to the river's leeward margin. Now was the time to rake it out and regain favour with the motormen. On it water hens walked with impunity, mostly into the shelter as I approached a fussing. The sweet breeze was as the aroma of the vinted grape. A pretty line for a teapot. The Gladden had something to do with it. My square foot of the mast had long ago rounded to the strain, and makes things safer in a squall than a square foot that will not give. I can let go in a parrot's wink, as I had promptly to do near Rockland Delta. I even let the sheet go, and the sail turned its edge to me, the boat forging ahead, still by the wind that smote the mast alone, just as I have had it gust on Braden. A close-reefed wherry slipped past me, the skipper's better half, or three-quarters, popping her head out of the cabin to size up the curiosity in the Braden tub. I wonder what she thought of me, perhaps as much as I thought of her. Just after that, I reefed the sail and rehoisted it as a sop to Cerebus, if my classics be not faulty. Lor, how we did bowl along, the reeds nodding to me merrily. What a small place in the universe does a single reed fill up? As much, perhaps, as a worm like me in mine. But I suppose we are here for some good reason. AND EARN OUR RIGHT TO EXISTENCE. I HOLD THE SHEET CAREFULLY, FOR MY WIFE'S SAKE, KEEPING CLEAR OF ENTANGLEMENTS. SWANS ARE ABROAD AND SCUTTER OUT OF MY WAY, WHITE THEMSELVES WITH MULATTO OFFSPRING. THE TALL POPLARS SWAY AND TREMBLE TO THE BREEZE, THEIR FLUTTERING LEAVES ALL A SCIEN AND A SOBBEN, the reeds on my left, still a noddin' and a bobbin'. This is a unique jingle, but not copyright. Am close hauling Cantley crushers tall shaft, a tantalising chimney, which is just round the corner, but the bend yet seems slow in ending. The tall landmark may be seen from Braden. Yachtsman, on an awkward wind, Eager to reach it, wish it further, if this is not an Irishism. Near Reedham, I wool gathered a moment when the sail jibed, and the boom cracked my head a little, the Yankee bowler fortunately acting as a fender. Now I know how my now-extinct school truants must have smarted under a caning. Stayed a minute or so to walk along the reed and promenade. I wonder if it was here that Lodbrog the Dane landed with his hawks and his henchmen, my remote ancestor Ludkin on my mother's side. Reached the mouth of the Cut at nine thirty, meeting the ebb from the Waveney, but the wind was cut out for us. Now, old girl," said I, "we'll rip." Oh, yes, we talk to each other in our way. At any rate, she nods to my remarks and answers to what I tiller. her, excuse Misspelling spelling, in her way. So steady and sure was the wind that I might have lashed the tiller and the sail laid its lug to it and took heed. The waters curled against the wind but the yarwelp bounded over them. She took the bit again, refusing to jibe, kicking up the water at her heels. We simply snorted along, and she showed her paces to a hulking pleasure wherry with three weary gents and a lady lashed to a tow rope, who bent at half a right angle on the dam, pulling the lazy craft, in spite of the tide being under her, which will tell you how the wind lay. At ten, my old servant laid her nose beside the moorhen's streaks, and quietly submitted to each painter's tying. Good old yarwhelp, and now shortly for Braden, my little boat. End of section three.